Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 14 of the North Meet South web podcast. Wow, hard to believe it's actually episode 14. It's gone pretty quick, hasn't it? We've made it. Like, we made, we made it past seven. We have doubled it now. Yeah, I'm impressed. I remember when we were getting to 10 and it was like, all right, 10 is the threshold. Most people stop at 10, so we're going we're gonna to at least get through 10 and then we'll decide whether or not we want to keep doing it. So we're past it. And uh, today we have on the show with us the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Matt Stauffer. And we actually have in our show notes to insert the clap track here. So like the... You know, and so we're, I think we might do that. Michael, you're going to have to mix that in post. I'm going to have but, to find uh, something. Yeah, Matt is a prolific Laravel blogger. He is the host of the Laravel podcast, The 5-Minute Geek Show. He is a co-founder at Titan Co., which is a Laravel shop in Chicago. And he is also the writer of a brand new book, which is going to be coming out soon, Laravel Up and Running. Matt, thanks so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to come on the show with us today. We're super stoked to have you on. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm also very, very excited to be here. Yeah, I know. I just kind of maybe took all of your intro ammo there uh, for <laughs> all the stuff that you're working on. Uh, but for anybody who might not be familiar, would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a web developer. I'm a teacher. I run a consultancy co uh, co in it with my buddy Dan, and uh, we work in Laravel. We also do front-end web development, UI and UX and that kind of stuff. And I have a, a background in all of those. So I've been a designer, developer, teacher, communicator, that kind of stuff. And I am I think I'm known or heard about primarily because I like teaching as much as I like doing any of those other things. So my kind of policy is when I do it, um, then I turn around and say, was there a blog post that taught me exactly how to do the thing I just did? And if not, let's go write about it somewhere. So yeah, I like speaking at conferences. I like, you know, uh, writing books, writing blog posts, stuff like that. So I live in Gainesville, Florida, which is not the beach. It's an hour and a half away from the beach in every direction. Um, and I rep Chicago, uh, even though I was born outside of Detroit and lived in Chicago for three years. And now I live in Gainesville, but I still rep Chicago. And I, c- I can say, well, you know what? I started a business there. So that's my justification for it. And my son was born there. So there awesome, you go. Man. Um, and yeah, I got married, got a kid, um, got a baby. So there's a I guess he's not a toddler. Maybe he's, I don't know if he's, he's four. So I don't know if he's a toddler anymore, but I got a four year old and then we got a newborn and then we have a tiny little fluffy puppy. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I don't know if there's anything else. I saw a picture of your dog recently. That's a pretty cute dog. What kind of dog is that? I uh, think he's half Chihuahua, half Yorkies and I'm, I'm allergic to dogs. So we lived in this place um, where the rule was only cats and I'm more allergic to cats. And so we're like, well, what if we get a dog that Matt's not allergic to that's as small as a cat? And turns out I'm not allergic to chorkies. Um, and we got one for free. And so it's kind of like perfect. And he's great, man. I, I don't know if I was going to like little dogs, but he doesn't have that kind of chihuahua Napoleonic complex like some of them do. So, yeah. Nice. Um, also, speaking speaking of sh- uh, Chicago, so uh, the, the Cubs right yeah, now. This cubbies, is happening. This is a thing. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, I'm not going to go too far into it. But basically, the Cubs have not been in the World Series for many, 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 many decades. And all of a sudden... They are, and the first game of the series that's in Chicago is tonight. So half of our company's basically shut down today. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, I I live in Gainesville, and I'm I'm only a little bit of a sports guy, but I've recently decided that so many of my friends love the Cubs so deeply that it's just something I just you know I got to do it. I got to love it. So I I, I I listened to my first ever Cubs game on ESPN Radio the other day and felt like a like a real Chicagoan, whatever that means. 
Yeah, I I went out uh, I went out to go watch a game with a couple friends the other day, and I mean I don't watch baseball, you know, but this is like history. Yeah, yeah. Like you have to watch you have to watch at least a game uh, or a couple of them, you know. So yeah, there's a lot. You know, I live in Illinois, so there's Cubbies fans everywhere. You know, there's yeah. the big the the W flags hanging out of every window. You know. Everybody's super hyped. Yeah. Uh, does anybody in your company, is anybody um, fortunate enough to actually have tickets to the games? Dan's going tonight. Um, oh, so my word. Dan, my business partner, has season tickets, but he shares them with people. So he's not going to every game. He's going to one, maybe two games. Um, but, I mean, he's been a Cubs fan since he was old enough to know, you know, what a Cub was. So this is a this is a big deal for him. So he's he's several times, he, like, posted the pictures of his tickets, and he's like, this is unreal. Like, this, it's been my whole life waiting for this moment. So, oh, yeah. that's so cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I see his kind of recap of every game on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, you know, that's my, that's the extent of my keeping up with the Cubbies. I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, I only met Dan at Laracon this year, but I don't think in the entire three days did I ever see him without a Cubs cap on. Yeah, so. I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Yeah. He's one of the, he's the one of the most avid sports fans of anybody I know, which is for that one team. And I mean, I'm sure he likes other sports plenty fine, but he's a, he's a Cubs guy. And the funny thing is when I moved there, I did, so I've always lived in a place where uh, college sports is the thing. I lived in Ann Arbor and I lived in Gainesville. So University of Michigan and the University of Florida, that was the way for it. So when I moved to Chicago, it was the first time that the big sports were pro sports. And I went by Wrigley Field twice a day on the way to work and on the way home from work. And it just kind of was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. You know, and it was only really towards the end of my time there where Dan and I started a business together that we were like, hey, you know, he's like, well, I got to get you some games. And I still have never been to a game, but uh, he keeps pr- making me, you know, telling me I'm going to get. So he, he ended up getting me a hat for my birthday, Cubs hat for my birthday <laughs> this year. And I think I've just, I just hit that tipping point. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to call it. I'm a Cubs fan now. So nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you guys have what the Marlins down there, but eh, Cubbies is the way to go. Yeah. Uh, well, before we get too far into things, I kind of wanted to take a couple minutes just to talk about how it was that uh, kind of open source brought us three together and kind of how we've all met and interacted uh, over the last year and a half or so. So, Michael, uh, I figured I'd let you start with that and just kind of talk about how it was that you and Matt met and yeah, and uh, what you guys have been working on together. Yeah, so I think I'm pretty sure the first time, I mean, as with a lot of people at, in Laravel, I think it was just following Matt on Twitter in general um, that, that I first got in touch with him and it was... He was always very responsive if I had any questions or if I, you know, I tweeted, he was always one of the people that would, that always respond reasonably quickly, which was always good. But I think the first time really that, that I did interact with Matt, I sent him an email for the very first blog post that I was planning on publishing on my website and had him read over it um, and sort of had him mentor me in how to write. And I've written a few blog posts since then, you know, which is, it's always been nice having that advice from Matt in the back of my head you know, with everything that I've written going forward. So it's sort of helped to steer me in and write from the perspective of someone who has not perhaps looked at Laravel or whatever the topic is. Um, so that was always really good. Matt was a great mentor in that regard. And then we sort of done a bit of open source work together. So um, there was a few pull requests around the place. And then the first project that, that we worked on sort of together was Confomo which I wanted to, when when Matt put out the request for help earlier in the year, I wanted to sort of help out with that because planning on going over to Laracon this year, I thought that'd be a great way to keep track of every everything that I'm doing or everyone that I'm meeting. So I saw good value in that for other people. And unfortunately, Matt had his uh, his baby due the week of Laracon. So 
after all of that, we didn't even get to meet each other. I so it's crazy. My wife and I are planning on going next year. We're going to go and do a tour of the US. Nice. So we'll That's do awesome. a week either side of Laracon. So um, hopefully they'll we'll uh, finally get to meet them. I'll, I'll be there. No question. Yeah, cool. I'll definitely be there. So in a yeah. secret, undisclosed location. <laughs> I believe I'm thinking California. I'm thinking San Fran. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Matt's probably got the inside scoop, but he's not going to say anything. He's not going to spoil it. I see that smile on his face. He's turning around like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we won't we won't force you to say anything you don't want to say. Uh, I'll go real quick. Just give a quick kind of uh, rundown of how me and Matt met. Yeah, similar story. Um, you know, just kind of a, um, I don't know what was the best way to say that. Not a shout out for open source, but basically just a um, testimony of the benefits of like kind of learning and doing, you know, doing open, open source stuff. So uh, I think um, just log, uh, which I used to blog was, uh, you know, the first uh, project that I contributed to with open source and ended up really, really liking kind of the feedback that I got and the kind of the code is like free code review. You know, it's like, here's how you learn how to code better, submit a pull request and then have somebody who's much better than you look at your code and tell you what's wrong with it. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it and was involved in that project for a while there and kind of got to know Matt through that and uh, went to Laracon 2015 and, and met Matt. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's been cool. So I've at least got to meet Matt one time in person. And so hopefully again in the future soon. Um, well, Matt, we wanted to have you to, on today to talk about your book that's coming out, Laravel Up and Running, but um, it, we also wanted to talk a little bit about like your hiring and your onboarding processes at Titan. Uh, but before we get into that, I, something that we kind of like to do here, um, you know, there's a lot of technical podcasts out there and I think that that's awesome, but I am always really interested to kind of hear people's journey into how they started into development and, and, you know, where the, what their background is and where they come from. So I know that you were like a PHP and front end dev in the past and learning some Ruby on rails, but you kind of discovered Laravel and jumped ship on the whole Ruby thing. But I'm just kind of interested to hear like how Titan was started and the, and the path you took to get to where you are now. So would you mind just taking a few minutes to talk us through that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, in middle school, I think, my brother and I ran a bulletin board system. Um, and he was, he's three and a half years older than me and he was always kind of into the really geeky backend stuff. So he was running the bulletin board system. And I said, well, what can I do? And he said, well, you can, you can do the drawings. So I used this program called The Draw to write ASCII art for it. And then later, since that kind of set me down the design world, when we started doing web development, um, he would do the PHP in the back end and then later Python, and I would do the front end coding. And um, he would teach me just enough PHP to kind of like, you know, put a little oomph behind things. And he forced me to learn how to SSH into one of his servers and use Vim to edit them anytime I wanted to kind of give you that kind of input. So I always had that kind of PHP back end kind of experience. Um, but I really considered myself like a designer and front end developer. Went off to school for design and just turns out I wasn't very good at it. I liked it, but I wasn't very good at it. So studied English, worked for a nonprofit for a couple of years, kind of left technology for probably a solid six or seven years other than just kind of casual side stuff. And then, uh, with, I don't even know, late 2000s or 2010 or something like that, I started getting back into development and it was a very different world, especially in PHP. So I learned CodeIgniter, uh, Expression Engine, and started getting into that kind of stuff. And um, I liked the ideas and the flexibility of what I could do, but I didn't really like working with Expression Engine or CodeIgniter at all. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Um, I knew I wasn't a designer. I liked front end, but I wanted to be able to power stuff. And right around then I started learning about Rails. So I started kind of going down the road of learning Ruby and learning Rails. And this was 
Um, this happened on and off um, before and after starting Titan. So there's times when I and also times when Titan really considered kind of just going full on with Rails. And around that time, so 2010, 2011-ish, um, was when we discovered Laravel and kind of saw all the things we wanted out of Rails, but in a language we're more comfortable and, and familiar with and also in, in, in one that uh, worked for more of our clients. And, and a lot of our clients were in PHP, so uh, that was really helpful there. So with Titan, I moved to Chicago. My wife and I moved to Chicago in 2011 for her go- to go to grad school. I've been working for this nonprofit, but nonprofit work does not pay for private grad school. So I left the nonprofit. Um, I just volunteered after that. And I went on my own as a freelance web developer and met Dan because we happened to both work in the same co-working space. And I was looking for work and he was looking for developers. So we uh, joined together on a couple projects and really like working together so well that we ended up starting sort of, sort of. So he had a company that he was running with two other people. And uh, one by one, they dropped out and it was just kind of him. But he was a, a corporate identity and, you know, corporate legal entity of stuff like that that existed for ages. So at first I worked for that company and then later I joined that company as a partner and later we branded the whole thing as Titan. And so that's kind of what it was. And and right when we started working together, he was starting to make the switch from being a full-time developer to really liking business development and UI and UX, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I was making the transition from being a kind of casual developer who does a thousand other things to really trying to like dig deep into development. I really wanted to learn a lot. And and I, you know, I studied, like I said, I studied English in the end in, in school. I didn't study, I didn't get a computer science degree. So that was a time period where I really like dug deep. And it was the early days of responsive and the early days of a lot of like modernizer and feature detection and a lot of really interesting stuff in front and early days of SAS and Compass. So I just dug deep into those things, learned them really well and started getting to know PHP pretty well. And yeah, and, and once or twice during that time, we would say, you know what, we're not 100% satisfied with what we have. We'd go down the Rails world and we even end up taking on a client, a Rails client who just knew that I was just figuring it out and we're, we're comfortable with that. Um, but in the end, we just really found what we wanted out of Laravel, and which is an, an interesting kind of part of the story because right now, my one of my developers and I are actually going back and starting and learning Ruby and Rails from scratch, both because we think it's going to make us better developers in the work we do, but also, hey, you know, if we have some people at the company that can do Rails, then that just opens up the type of projects we can take and the type of clients we can work with. So I'm actually kind of returning back to that world, you know, five, six years later. So that's kind of, so yeah, that's kind of the thing. So Titan originally was just me and Dan. Um, I did all the development and he did all the kind of the business stuff. And then we both kind of overlapped with each other's work a little bit. And then we'd hire, you know, part-timers. Our first couple hires were either contractors who eventually became full-time or we'd hire people who are an intern in some way, shape or form. One of them was a recent college graduate. One of them was switching from, or two of them were switching for from different careers. And so there are people who were like, we are impressed with you as a person. So even if your development shop might not be there why don't you come work for us for three months or six months and we'll kind of put you through like a process of really kind of getting deep in the code and i'd basically mentor them and pair with them all day long stuff like that and at the end of the process see if you're you know feeling good to join the company and they all did so that was kind of our early hiring process and later we went to a more traditional hiring process but that's kind of how it started out and so we were kind of remote from go um and that's yeah that's basically the story that's pretty cool i uh i'm interested to hear you know you said that you know, you really dug deep into PHP and the front end and stuff. Like your your job right now, would you consider yourself like a full time developer? Uh, I mean, is that what you're doing? Not remotely. Or, or, or yeah. So like, what you know, what would you give yourself as a title if you had to, you know, traditional organization say like uh, my title is this a traditional organization i'd be a cto okay um within our we don't use c-suite because we're not a startup and it feels weird as a consultancy to use c-suite 
labels like CEO. But basically, um, other than the fact that we're you know equal co-owners, equal partners, um, so this is not quite right. Dan would be a CEO type role, and I'd be a CTO type role. Yeah. Um, so we call it um, he we call him the managing director, partner and managing director, and we call me the partner and technical director. Um, it's a little more appropriate, and it also doesn't convey the idea of the CEO being the big boss over all the other C suite, which a lot of people tend to think of. So yeah, I, in terms of the amount of code that I do, um, because it's a CTO level thing, I mean I write code, um, not not a lot of code, but I write code. I review a lot of code. I make a lot of kind of code level decisions um, about, you know, I'm, I'm on sales calls and a lot of that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, th- I think in general, like uh, most of what I would say three quarters of my week is spent on things related to code, but more than often than not, I'm not the one actually writing it. Cool. So you said that you were looking at going back and, and maybe learning uh, Ruby and, and Rails for Titan. Is that more of a, and you, and you said that was for becoming better developers. Is that more for a sort of exposure to another community and a different sort of thought process? Or is it because you've got a project coming up that you want to work or you need to work in Rails on? Or I mean, I think I think there's two purposes for it. Um, so any developer should be learning things outside of their comfort zone to be exposing their brain to different ways of thinking. And there's an argument to be made that if we're going to do that, it should be something that's very different, right? And you could say, well, Rails is very similar to Laravel, so that wouldn't be the way to go. Um, But I think one of the motivations for us doing this is because it's very similar, but it's not the same. And so being able to kind of delineate what those differences are um, and understand kind of in what ways are the same and what ways aren't they and why aren't they the same and which, you know, it's a it's a helpful comparison to be able to make. But honestly, I, I, when I wrote about this in my book and I've talked about this to a lot of people, but within the PHP world, there's really kind of like two strong leanings. And one of them is the people who want to make PHP more like Java and the other one is the people who want to make PHP more like Ruby. And I found that much of the Laravel world, including most of Titan, are the folks who want to make it more like Ruby. And as such, I feel like I really want to just get my hands dirty in Ruby a little bit. Again, I've, I learned it well enough to like write some apps in it, but it's been years and I never felt like I knew it very well. So I'm really approaching it, trying to p- picture I've never written this ever before and trying to treat it like I'm a complete noob so that I can kind of have my brain shaped that way. So yeah, later I might learn Elixir and Phoenix or something like that. But I think that the, just as developers, this is helpful. And then of course, from a business perspective, we do get plenty of people who say, you guys have a great reputation. We'd love to work with you, but for X and Y constraint, uh, we have to work on Rails. And we say, oh, sorry, we know some great Rails shops we can pass you off to. So if we do get to a point where we have internal competency in Rails to the point where right now I could say, yeah, I could kind of fix some broken things in a Rails app, but I'm not going to, we, we can't do Titan level of quality um, on Rails. I can build a Rails app. I can't do Titan level of quality in Rails app. So I'm not going to take on a Rails, Rails project right now. Cool. Yeah, I am. I think it's fairly obvious, even as someone who hasn't learnt Ruby or doesn't know Rails very well, there is a lot of material, and I, I sent a tweet out about some earlier this week, there's a lot of material in Rails that is very easily applicable to Laravel, and I'll link it up in the show notes, but there's a really great blog post about basically slimming down fat models, which is something that can happen pretty quickly in Laravel, because obviously we're using Active Record in the same way that, that Ruby on Rails does, so being able to see how a community that has had that pattern, you know, that's had active record for a number of years has already gone and figured out good ways of refactoring things like form objects and value objects and and being able to pull that stuff out. So even for anyone who's just a Laravel developer and has had no exposure to Ruby, I think, as you say, learning something that's outside of your comfort zone, Ruby on Rails and even just understanding how how Ruby developers approach something as 
big and powerful as well. Active Record is 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 going to help you out as a Laravel developer, I think. So the reason I asked, you know, a little bit ago about kind of your role and how it's changed over the last, you know, couple of years at Titan is that we've recently brought on our first junior developer. And so, you know, I'm actually really happy with who we ended up with. But during that process, you know, during the hiring process, I just kind of felt like I was shooting in the dark, just kind of winging it Mm -hmm. and, and hoping that it worked out. So I was interested in talking a little bit about like how Titan goes about hiring new developers and and specifically about, you know, you talked about pairing with uh, with programmers and, and kind of just doing that a lot with them. And I'm trying to figure out in my job, you know, how my role is going to change over the next year, being that I now have a junior developer that I'm kind of responsible for. And I'm going through some growing pains trying to figure out, you know, uh, what are the things I should be doing? Uh, you know, how brutal do I need to be in code reviews or how forgiving do I need to be? You know, do I need to write down a strict set of standards for like how we code and everybody needs to adhere to that? You know, those sorts of things. So let me try and filter that down to some concrete questions I can ask you sure. that we can kind of start with. But so let's start with what's the early process of your hiring look like? What do you what do you guys do to kind of filter out early candidates where, you know, you just post a job out there, you know, what's the first pass look like for you guys? What do you what kind of information are you collecting? You know, you're getting resumes for everybody, or are you just how does that work? The early steps of hiring actually happen before we put out the job posting because every time we hire, it's a distinct need. They're all developers usually. I mean we've hired non developers, but in general we're talking about developers. But every time we hire, we're identifying that there's a lack in Titan somewhere. And sometimes just it's a numeric lack. You know, it's just, well, we need more people. But even when we identify that, and that's the reason we can justify the cost of going through the whole hiring process, we still are usually identifying, well, culturally or in terms of our abilities, you know, what what do we need to, you know, do the better. And so we will often say things like, well, you know, we've been really struggling when something comes up where we need someone to do some front end work or to learn a new thing that they don't know, or to work in a CMS or to be a generalist or to handle client relations on a one-on-one project where we can't afford to have a PM or something like that. That's a, that's a particular type of attributes that we would focus on for a developer or other times it's, you know, we have some incredibly challenging, you know, computer science type problems that, and we have found like we're, we need more people in the company who feel comfortable taking on those challenges or innovating in a certain way or whatever. Well, that's a different set. It's not like it's a different person, but when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applicants, it's really helpful to be able to kind of apply those metrics. And so we're trying to make those thoughts and those decisions beforehand. And we try to make sure that even while we always start from like a stock kind of job description, that they're always, the job description is very specific to those things as much as it can which is why I get so irritated when we get applicants who have not read the job description and just say, well, I want to work at Titan, so I applied. I'm like, that's great, but I made sure the job description actually meant something. Otherwise, I would just say, hey, come work for Titan, period. You know, I'm, I'm not against that. I don't, I don't put those words up there because I have to. It's because it's actually useful information. So anyway, yeah, that makes sense. that's where it starts. So the next step is we put out the word, and so we'll list it on Lara Jobs. We'll put it up on Twitter, and often we'll, we'll mirror it over to places like we work remotely. And we'll usually get somewhere between 300 and 500 applicants. We used to get more. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we used to get more, but um, we were able to start using, I forget what the tool was. I'm not sure if I'm 100% in love with the tool, but we stopped using email, and we started using a SaaS. And the benefit of a SaaS is that each person has to go through the SaaS um, job application form and um, software as a service, sorry, and actually type in the things, which means... breezy, isn't it? Breezy, breezy, yeah, breezy is what we use. Thanks. Yeah, that's Um, awesome. 
and it's it's there, we have some things that irritate us because it's a kind of a new company, but they're you know they're working on it. But the the old ones we'd get so many in large part because people just add you know they look at job listings, scrape the email address off of them, and bulk mail a whole bunch of crap to them. So using something like Breezy, you can, and you could just use Google Forms if you wanted. All of a sudden, cut down the numbers a lot. And so the first thing we'll do is we'll take a first pass, and and whoever has time. Um, will kind of take a first pass and just really quickly put thumbs down at people. Won't give any feedback in any way, shape, or form other than finding the obvious no's. So the first obvious no is not in our you know time zone or whatever whatever our requirements end up being. The last couple times we've said basically Mexico, United States, Canada is our kind of general rule. We need to be in our time zone. You need to be within our trade arrangement. You know it needs to be easy for us to fly you places. It needs to be easy for us to send money to you. It needs to be easy for us to overlap with their schedules. Well, there you go. Those three countries are basically our thing, and we'll probably expand to South. America one day and maybe who knows to other time zones but that's so it's very easy to filter those people out so we go through and filter all those people out and then the next one is who just very obviously doesn't have what it takes either because of their educational background or because of the way they think it's appropriate to communicate or if it's just really obvious they just bulk sent out a whole bunch of applications to a thousand people and didn't care about us at all it's very easy to winnow those people out and usually by the time you've gotten those people out you're under 100 people and then it's to start going through that list of people. And we, as you can tell, we just round after round after round. After that, we go through all of them and just give a general thumbs up, thumbs down in the vibe. And in Breezy, it makes it really easy to have two thumbs up, one thumbs up, no thumbs up, one thumb down, two thumb down. And so basically, Dan and I would both do that. It would aggregate the numbers. And we kind of just said, anybody who doesn't get at least an aggregate of one thumbs up gets cut. And that was it. Because if Dan and I both get a negative vibe or only one of us get a decent vibe, um, then oh well. Um, you know, and so at that point, now we've gotten down to the people that are going to get a phone screen and we end up giving several dozen phone screens, a five minute call just to see, you know, what is it like talking to you in person and what do you, you know, how do you carry yourself face to face and all that kind of stuff. And then the people who make it past the phone screen, then they end up getting a, uh, written challenges. We send coding samples over to them, ask them to do certain things and, a certain number of people under a dozen end up getting a one-on-one technical interview with me. And it usually involves um, asking you to code review some of my codes and some other code and stuff like other stuff like that. And that usually winnows it down to a few people. And then those last few people will go in for another one or two rounds of interviews with me and Dan for hours at a time, talking about tech stuff, talking about who you are and what you value. You know, if we can get a face-to-face, we will, um, but it's not always an option. And then finally we decide. Did you say that you have people code review your code? Yeah. So I give code to every applicant and I ask them to code review it. So because so there's this the, the whole asking somebody to code on the spot, um, there's just all sorts of problems with it. Um, I do like the idea of giving code assignments. So that's one thing we do. We, we give you some code and say, hey, you have X amount of time to do Y with this code, not on a call. But the benefit of that is it doesn't put people in the pressure to draw stuff on a whiteboard. But the problem with that is it gets in the way of really knowing, kind of watching the process happen, which I really need to be able to do, especially as a remote company. So instead, I give them my code to review, which requires no you know, knowledge, it requires no Googling, it requires no stack overflow, it just requires showing me what how your brain approaches code. I think one of the fun parts that I've seen, probably in the time that I've known you, Matt, you've Titan has posted maybe two or three jobs. And there's always that one little fun question in the you know, in the job posting saying, you know, you need you must include a reference to a cat or you must include mm-hmm. a picture of a dog. So I think that really would help out. Where I'm where I am we don't get developers in the hundreds, so we don't unfortunately get the luxury of filtering that out. We we have, you know, sort of in the order of tens where we can look at everyone. But I, th- I thought that was a kind of fun way to, I guess, I, kn- I know it's fun for people applying, but it's also 
makes it easy for you guys to really filter out not only the people that haven't had the time to, as you say, look into the company or just sent the same resume to 100 companies. It, it makes it easy for you guys to see you know, who's actually paying attention because I think it's those attention to detail kind of things that Titan is pretty well known for as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, if you can't pay attention to detail, then I don't want you to work for me. If you can't pay attention to written communication, I don't want you working for my remote company. If you can't listen to the things I'm asking you in our first, this is basically your first date, right? Like this is the time where you're supposed to be working hardest to impress someone. And if you're not even good enough to listen and take a, pay attention to the things that the person is explicitly sending you, telling you how to be impressive, and you don't take advantage of that, then sorry, you know, I'm not interested. Um, but also we do want to, we want it to be fun. We want it to be fun for them. It helps loosen up the, the tension a little bit and it helps show that like part of our attitude as a company is to be a little, a little goofy. So I remember on one of your code challenges, I thought it was fun. Uh, in the revision history, if you looked back, I don't want to give away any trade secrets here. <laughs> so I want to be careful. There's, but... there's, let's just say there's little hidden secrets all around the place looking for people's attention to detail. And the thing is, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been pairing with people for a long time. So I have a very, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a people person more than I am a code person. So I really read people in a lot of ways. So I just find as many opportunities to, to get, get a read off of somebody as possible in the process. That's cool. So like speaking of first day, you know what I'm saying? And how you guys go through the process of onboarding a new developer. You know, do you guys have a, I highly doubt it, but I'll say it anyway. You have like a training guide or a handbook that you can kind of give these people or, you know, do you have like a set of documents that you say like, this is kind of how we go about things or uh, do you just do a lot of pairing? Do you just do a lot of code reviews? Like what's what's sort of your process for like the first month of a new mm -hmm. developer? What's that look like for you guys? Well, all, all of our new developers that have started recently join our Slack a week or two before they actually join the company. So they're around and just kind of hanging out, you know, either whether at, at their previous job or just contracting they'll just show up every once in a while and be like hey i'm here for five minutes you know on a smoke break or a lunch break or whatever um and so they can start just kind of interacting with people and kind of getting to know them and sometimes even dming them and saying hey tell me your whole life story i'm about to work here soon i want to know who you all are we do have a handbook of sorts but it's really not where we want it to be but we want to be able to pass out a hand handbook so it's really clear to people what our expectations are and what our policies are about holidays or whatever else it ends up being um, we have some general kind of code style things like, yeah, well, we want to follow the PSRs. And then I laugh and tell people we're PSR JavaScript, which is basically just like apply the PHP style rules to JavaScript as much as you can. And, you know, and set up the and here's the things you got to set up in this way. And we do our code pulls this way. And we're trying to codify that stuff more and more as time goes on, because the more people we have, the less appropriate it is to say, well, just do it the way that is in Matt's brain. <laughs> and part of it is really just people having to internalize that. And every time I realize that someone is having to internalize something that's in my brain, based on my code reviews or whatever, I try to see if we can codify that. But a lot of that early information comes through in pairing and code reviews. And I would say you, you mentioned something about code reviews earlier um, and how to do code reviews well. Um, somebody wrote a fantastic article. I, I can't remember who it was, but I feel like it was from GitHub talking about how to use the right tone in your code reviews. And the main thing I would talk about uh, that I would really focus on is your tone in your code reviews is everything, especially if you're a remote team, but even in open source, your tone is absolutely everything. And so you notice the difference between you know, like a Donald Trump style code review that just says wrong, you know, wrong, <laughs> fix it, wrong, <laughs> you know, or something that says, well, have you considered that we might run into this problem? And that's a, that's a language and approach to tone that's very different. It says the same thing, but it really treats people very differently. And so I make sure that all my code reviews say things along the line, have you considered this or please this, or why don't we try that or something like that? So, yeah, I think the other thing is maybe not 
not specifically to Titan, but just in the open source community at large, mm-hmm. it's important to realize that not everyone speaks English as a native language. So when giving code reviews, especially when working in open source, you need to be mindful of that, that some people, either you may come across to them as abrasive or whatever because you're being short or because you're not being clear or maybe because you know they're not understanding what you're saying. So I think, and we, I mean, we're a small small team of four and I sit, in the same space as all, all three, you know, all three of the others. So it's very easy to turn around and tap someone on the shoulder and say, "Hey, have a chat with them and explain why something is, why you don't think something is the right approach." Whereas in, you know, in text, it's it's hard to get a read of how someone was, you know, thinking or whether they're in a rush or you know, it seems like as you said, wrong. Or you could say, you know, I think we might run into a problem if you continue down this track. So Yeah, I used to um, work for a video development firm as an intern when I was in high school. And one of the things they had me do was answer the phones and do some follow-ups with our clients. And I got a correction within my first month of working there that I just sounded grouchy. <laughs> and they said that the trick is you got to smile before you pick up the phone and people yeah. will hear your smile. And I think it's the same kind of thing here. It's like you got to smile before you write that comment. Yeah. Um, and it's not just as easy like being happy because like you said, everything doesn't come through in text the way it does in voice. But like trying to make sure that like can someone pick up that smile by the words you're writing? And if not, maybe choose different words. So Yeah, I've, I'm fortunate in that the, you know, we're a team that is, we operate locally. You know, that was kind of one of our big things when we were looking for who to hire uh, was we basically said like, okay, this guy's like 45 minutes away. We're trying him first kind of thing. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, it's worked out really well, thankfully. Um, but, uh, you know, I find myself doing that a lot where like I'll give a code review <laughs> And then I kind of like run over to his office and be like, hey, man, just, you know, this is kind of like, what you know, just so I can kind of like, you know, give some of that tone through like, you know, actual personal interaction just to make sure he didn't take it personal, whatever, you know. Okay, pro tip. So I'm I'm still trying to figure out that that right, uh, that right tone. I'm I'm working on it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's going well, but I'm sure. Code reviews are the best. What's that now? Uh, Pairing code reviews. That's my favorite way to give a code review. Uh, I give a code review with the person on Screen Hero with me. And then I'm saying the things and I'm using my tone and then I'll type a note down in the code review. But it's basically like a one-on-one code review where they're hearing everything. And so even remotely, I'm able to get that tone. And there's one guy who I do these code reviews with. And by the time I'm done, he's like, okay, code review is implemented. Because like as I was saying the things, he's just in the code base fixing them. Nice. But yeah, one. I don't know if you always have the luxury of that. But a pairing code review is amazing because you know if you have the ability to just sit in the same room as the guy and co- review his code, while he watches over your shoulder and then you you, and i I know you can't always do that but it's something that you know you might find might alleviate some of that for sure yeah i think my temptation too is like sometimes you know i I think i have to force myself to stay on the github code review section instead of like getting into the code because what i end up doing is i just fix it myself you know if i'm doing sort of like a pairing code review and i'm looking at the code as i'm doing it i just say well this is kind of how you do it and and actually i've done before where like I, i like snap a new branch and i like do it and then I just like delete the branch and like, okay, now you do that kind of thing, I guess. I don't know if that's yeah. a good, you know, I, so I've tried to find, kind of force myself to stay in GitHub so I can keep the concepts kind of conceptual uh, so I can have him do it and not try and fix everything, just jump in and fix it, you know? Well, I'll often write code 
but I'm gonna write it in the GitHub comment box. And so every single time something comes up that I wanna talk about, I'll hit the little plus button in GitHub, and then I'll start typing, you know, three three backticks, PHP, enter, enter, three backticks, click in the middle space. All right, now what are we gonna do with this? And I'm writing that stuff out, and we're going back and forth, and we hit the preview, step back and say, how does that read? Does that read better? Does that read worse? And so there's a lot of great kind of interactions that can come, even if you restrict yourself only to that GitHub space. Yeah, well, we spoke about it a little bit last week, and, and yeah, as Jake said, it's a matter of, not not teaching that person in such a way that they're going to do things their own way and kind of become, I guess, resentful because they're going to submit something and you'll look at it and go, oh, no, that's not how I want it. And then and you fix it yourself. And then this person just knows that they can yep. submit essentially whatever they want and you'll just fix it later. So you've, I think it's important that you find the line and where, you, you know, you, where you're balancing carefully the right or the way you want to do things and having the other person appreciate why and then going along that same path. Um, but, but like you said, Jake, with, with you know, starting a new branch and doing the work and then deleting the branch when you finished, I had a, a colleague in a, in a previous job where I would go and ask him for help and he would, you know, step through the process and he'd explain it and he'd write the code and he wouldn't save the file that he was working in at the end of it, he's like, all right, does that make sense? Yes, he'd close the file and then he would distract you for another 10, 15 minutes. And then by the nice. time you get back to your desk, you go, oh dear, what, you know, I've forgotten <laughs> now what? What, what that was all about because it was out of my mind. So yeah, demonstrations of how to do it in a way where you mm-hmm. actually want people to um, learn and absorb information and and how definitely not to do it. <laughs> yeah, you got to write it down for them, right? You can't, you can't just, I guess that's a, that's a good point. You can't just do it and then delete it and expect them to remember. So good point. Purdy. Uh, so Matt, you, your most recent 5-Minute Geek Show that was out this week, which we will link to in the show notes, you spoke about having small commitments and comparing that against having sort of large goals. And, and the thing that stood out was setting a goal like losing weight versus setting a commitment to walking 10,000 steps every day and sort of balancing all of that out how did how did that come about i think that it's a thing i've been doing for a while but it was the ten thousand steps that i that finally made me realize it usually when something happens if i make a show i realized it like an hour beforehand <laughs> i'm like oh i'm going to talk about this thing that i just figured out and share nice. it with everybody same thing with my blog that's the thing like oh, unless there's like a like a big new release of laravel or some front end thing or something like that it's usually like oh i learned this thing i'm gonna stop everything go blog it release the blog and then go back to whatever i was doing so that was what this one was i've been doing these things for a while where i get disappointed with my attention to long-term things and in some ways i've said well i have a really bad memory i have really bad willpower really bad attention to, to consistently do things in the end, beating yourself up only gets you so far. And so what I want to be able to do is say, what are the things that work for me uniquely? And then go do those things and stop putting all these pressures on myself. And one of them is that I found that uh, it's hard for me to do things without being able to feel comfortable that like I can reset the goal every day or on a very, very short term basis that a success once encourages me to have a success the next time, but a failure once doesn't kind of like just strip me of all my motivation. And uh, each of these things is just much easier in the, in the shorter term. But also I found that it's, I said this in the podcast, it's very difficult to justify doing something that is outside of uh, your normal action or your societal norm when it's based on some long-term goal. And I think that's one of the hardest things for me as like a conflict avoider. It's very easy. It's very difficult for me to say, I'm not going to do this thing with my friends. I'm going to do that thing with the family. I'm not going to eat this thing. And it's hard for to say it to me and to other people because I'm trying to lose weight. 
because I'm trying to whatever. It's just kind of like this, like, oh, whatever. Stop being a punk and just do it. You know, like people will say that. My Myself will say that. But it is so much easier to say, I cannot eat that thing because that would put me over X number of calories for today. And I'm only allowed to have this many calories for a day. And that doesn't mean I can't have it ever. It just means on a day when I have it, I need to instead do X, Y, Z to get around it. Or, oh, I can't go to sleep yet. I have not hit my 10K goal for today. And that's it. Just, you know, and not... For, for those who are not Americans, 10K meaning 10,000 steps, not 10 kilometers. Um, <laughs> yeah, 10 kilometers. About eight kilometers. Yeah, um, right. So I, I've not hit my 10K day uh, goal for today. And so it's in the short term, it's very easy to say, hey, you know, honey, I sh- probably should be going to sleep yet, but I haven't got my 10,000 steps. And every night I do that. But if every night I was like, hey, I'm going to go out and walk for an hour because I'm trying to get healthy, there'd be so many nights where I and my wife and other people would be like, why don't you just chill out on that a little bit? Yeah. But now I can be like, I didn't hit my 10,000 steps today. And often when I think of that, I'm like, oh, man. If I don't walk around more during the day, then I'm going to have to stay out late at night walking again. And I really would like to get enough sleep tonight. And so it helps me to start adv- thinking of those things in advance. And, and my brain works for that in very short bursts. It doesn't work across the span of three months, but it works really well across the span of 24 hours. And the same thing with eating. I'm like, you know what? I know that it's Friday night. Often on Friday nights, my family goes out and gets something to eat. Maybe I'm going to kind of say no to that unhealthy thing on Friday morning because I know that I still want to stay within my calorie goal or my protein goal or whatever. And this will allow me to have a little more space for that. So Yeah, yeah I think it's like it was really, really helpful for me because... I think my mind works the same way. You know, I am hyper-focused on small things. You know, I, I, I do that really well. You know, if I'm focused in on one thing, it's like, it's it's that. But my window of attention is maybe like within a couple days. You know, I, I have a hard mm-hmm. time kind of thinking, you know, a year from now, whatever, you know, it's, you know, I, I'm jealous of all my friends who can be like, yeah, we're going on vacation in like, you know, next year we have this whole thing planned. And I'm like, my brain just doesn't, I don't even, I'm not even right. there. Like I'm in, I'm in tomorrow or the next day, you know? So it, I hate this saying, but it kind of personifies what we're talking about. Like, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time, right? It, it kind of takes these large goals and breaks them down to these attainable pieces that I can, I can do. So like, I know that there's this book that I'm really wanting to read right now. And I've had it for, you know, two months, three months or something like that. I literally haven't even started. And it's like when you said, oh, I'm going to read, you know, you said in your podcast, you said, I'm going to commit to reading like 10 pages. I'm like, 10 pages? I can do, anybody can do 10 pages. And the thing is, if I would have started that three months ago, I would have been done two months ago, probably, you know? Yeah. So it's just, you know, making those small commitments. And I think, I think that's something that that'll be very, very helpful for me. So yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really good, really insightful. So speaking of small steps to accomplish one large goal, and this will probably be what we'll kind of end the show with, uh, I know you've been working really, really hard uh, for the last, I don't even know, year, year and a half maybe on this on this new book that you're working on, Laravel Up and Running. So the entire prospect of writing a book seems really incredibly intimidating to me. And I know you've done a couple of podcasts on you know why you wrote the book and what your goals were for it, but uh, I was wondering if you could kind of just share, you know, what it is that you're hoping the book is going to accomplish. Like, you know, what was your purpose for writing it? And then, you know, any tips for someone who's looking to write a book or things that you learned that you thought were interesting during the whole process? Yeah. Um, so the kind of primary focus for Laravel and Up and Running is to, I think it's twofold. One of them is my original stated goal 
was to give a resource for already experienced programmers to learn Laravel. And so I was not trying to say, here's the book that's going to take someone who's never written a line of PHP and never heard of MVC or whatever and get them up and running because it would be three times the length it is because I'd have to teach them PHP and all this other thing. So it's really just saying, like, let's say you're a Symfony developer or a Codeigniter developer. This is the this is going to give you the information need to as fast as possible get up and running. And it, you know, it'll probably work for a Java developer or a Ruby developer as well because you can pick those things up pretty quickly. So uh, that dri- drove some things. I, I focused longer on some things and shorter on others. It also really informed the order of the book. The order of the book is very focused on the most important stuff first. The stuff you do on every app is first and the stuff you do infrequently is last. That's kind of like how it works out. And I tried to make sure it was kind of a narrative structure so that you can it reads well. But in the end, every single app will use the stuff that's on page two. And almost every app will use the stuff on page five. And most apps use, use the stuff on page 200. You know, So it's kind of those things where you can pick it up and read 50 pages and get started in that side app that you're working on and then read another 50 pages and now you can do you know database and the views and the whatever else so that's kind of how it works so the second thing i think i only discovered recently which is i often have people ask me how do i learn laravel from the beginning and i know how to tell them certain things go go sign up for laracasts follow these people on twitter hopefully follow me follow my blog all that kind of stuff but None of them just have a really defined track of like this, then this, then that, and the other. Laracast has some things like that, but even Laracast, it's, he's constantly updating and he's covering other topics. And so there's not one place where I just say, go do this from start to finish. And then now you had a, you know, you know how to write Laravel. And I've been especially aware of that as I'm trying to do that for Ruby and Rails. I can't just go to a Rails tutorial. I don't know Ruby, you know? And so I'm like doing this little bit of Ruby from here and that little bit of Ruby from there and a little bit of Rails, but then a little bit more Ruby, all kind of stuff. And it's kind of whole dance. I really would love for someone to say, if you read this book or work through this course, start to finish, you will be a competent Ruby and Rails developer. And this is what you need. And there's no such thing because it's really difficult to have that kind of a thing. So that's what I want for Laravel. And again, I'm not teaching somebody how to do PHP. So it's not even quite what I just asked for for Ruby because I'm not teaching somebody how to use PHP. But I think PHP is so easy to learn and there's so much kind of PHP embedded here. If you know any languages like a C, C++, Java, or whatever else, the block syntax for PHP is going to be so familiar. It's almost the same. It's not You're not really going to struggle with that much. And so I think it's all going to come through relatively well. So, so my hope is that when someone says, you know, I've been a Symphony program for X amount of time and I'm curious about Laravel, um, I just say, yeah, go to read this book and then you'll know. That's all you need. You know, that's not to say it covers everything ever, but I, that was my focus was to say, in order to, to work for Titan, what are the things you need to know about Laravel? Well, that is a really solid first step there. Like if you've read that book and understand all the things in that book, you're, you're, and really kind of internalize them, you're ready to go work at a at a consultancy that does Laravel. Um, So those are the two things. I think one was to explicitly make it easy for uh, programmers who've been interested in Laravel but never learned it to to go learn it. And and then two was to say, here's the, not maybe, maybe not canonical, but here's the place where you can learn it from A to Z altogether in one place. Yeah, up until recently, we've been, We've been quite focused on using um, Laravel 5.1 and and sticking on the LTS release. So more recently, we sort of decided that we'll probably look at using the latest releases, which is is great. But it also means that I haven't really seen the Laravel documentation for... Mm -hmm. A while, I guess, like about a year. I haven't, I haven't read the latest. You know, I'd, I'd look at bits and pieces when I was looking for something specific, but I hadn't read the documentation for five point three. So having used five point three for the last couple of weeks, I've noticed the structure is very different. And you said that the book, and I've, I've read your book, obviously. Thank you. So the book follows a narrative, right? The book 
has everything you need to do. The first thing you learn about is, you know, about routing and then it talks about controllers and then it talks, you know, it steps you through the things that you will need to know first in order to get into deeper application. And I noticed that with the 5.3 documentation, it, it does follow more of that kind of narrative style. Did, did the way that you sort of authored the book drive that in any way? Is it something that you and Taylor riffed on at all? I don't think it would be fair for me to take credit for it. I do think that Taylor and I interact a good amount on the documentation, but to say that like he made the changes he did to the documentation as a result of things that I've said or my book, I think would be unfair. But I do think that we encourage each other towards doing better at this. But I think that Taylor has maybe the best inherent understanding of how to do docs and how to teach well. And I'm not responsible for that. You know, I appreciate the question, but I, I would say, I wouldn't say that I've like had no positive impact on the docs or on Taylor. I am, I'm sure I have, but I would say the, the, the thing that you noticed was majorly or, or primarily the fact that just Taylor is, has paid a lot of attention to the docs recently, like a lot, a lot, a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and he goes through them over and over and over and over and over again. But I, I mean, I, I would think, I would think like, I think with any framework or anything, anything else, the more the framework author understands the perspective of somebody who doesn't know a thing, um, the better they're able to write documentation. And I do think that my blog posts and maybe my book have helped in some ways kind of share a vision of what it looks like to help folks in that perspective. But in general, yeah, I don't want to really take a ton of credit there. So, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I've appreciated the, uh, you know, you mentioned that it's got a, a narrative kind of format and yeah, I'll agree with that. I've I have not finished the book yet. I have got a good uh, good start on it, and um, it's maybe a corny illustration. But I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I would read my Bible, I would read a King James version, which is for those of you who are not aware, mm-hmm. it is like old English, old school. Matt, you may or may not be familiar <laughs> with this old version. These uh, and the thous. Yeah, <laughs> and so. What I read now is on the recommendation of a friend was the NLT version is what it's called. And it's like, it reads like a story. Yeah. You a fan? You're a fan. Huge fan. Oh yeah. So it reads like a, like what a book. I mean, you know, it just, you can read long passages without it seeming disjointed and stuff. (laughs) And, uh, you know, not to draw a parallel to your book being the Bible or whatever, but you know, a lot of technical, a lot of technical publications, I mean, they'd feel that way. They feel disjointed and they feel like, oh man, like between chapters, you just, there's like really, it's just kind of janky. And so I appreciated while I was reading the book, you know, it's, it's similar to uh, the voice that it's written with is similar to your blog posts, but as well, I can tell there's been a lot of, just a lot of thought put into uh, making it flow and making it just work well together. So yeah, so it's it's really well written. I'm excited for it to come out so that everybody else can get a chance to get their hands on it. It's a really great book. Highly, highly recommend it. Thank you. And I, I appreciate what you said about the flow. Um, the, to take it back to the Bible just for a second, the King James was, was one, but I think if you t- look at the modern translations, there's two kind of winning modern translations, you know, winning meaning the most popular. One of them is the ESV, and one of them is the, um, the NIV. Um, and NLT is very similar to NIV, so let's just say ESV versus NLT. The ESV is like a word-for-word translation. And what they did was when they were translating the Bible from the original, you know, Greek and Hebrew, they wanted to make sure that it was as factually accurate as possible. And I love the ESV. It's really great for studying deep things and thinking deep thoughts. But reading it like a book or reading it out loud is not great. It's almost like reading a dictionary at times or reading a, you know, reading a 
encyclopedia or I almost said reading a Wikipedia, reading an encyclopedia or something like that. And so the NL, NLT and stuff like that, they really focus a lot less on making sure each word is factually accurate. And they really focus a lot more on making sure they, they say instead of word for word, it's more like thought for thought. And one of the things is like, well, the Bible was, you know, there's poetry and there is, you know, there's there's compelling historical stories and stuff like that. And to, to, to keep your concern for factual accuracy and allow it to get in the way of people experiencing the things as they're intended to be experienced is really a problem. So it's definitely, I very much thought about that. And, and so that the reason to take that analogy further is because I think in technical writing, it's really important to, and, and also in your presentations or whatever else, read the stuff out loud that you're writing. And because people are reading it out loud in their head. And so I will never, and I've done many rounds of editing over my stuff, but I'll never publish anything without having read it um, at least aloud in my head um, once beforehand. And often I'll read it out loud. So if people think that I'm crazy when I write an email when we're pairing together or something like that. But basically I will write the email, you know, cause often I'll like ask a developer who's the lead on a project to like help me write the email to the client or something like that. And I'll go back and reread it until we hit a point where it doesn't work. And then I'll like stop, do a whole bunch of editing and I'll go back and reread it out loud. And so like anytime I send an email to a client, I probably read it out loud about seven times making <laughs> sure that it flows well, it makes sense and it's clear because the, the process of things to brains to fingers does not always actually get it out the way that's going to make sense to somebody's ears unless, until you actually try it out. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. I'll I'll say that I've recently kind of tried to t- do that practice as well. And I'll write it out, and I intend to be really wordy in my emails and whatever. And so mm-hmm. I try and go back and remove literally everything that's not completely necessary. I use a lot of adjectives and yeah. stuff that's just flowery language, and I just try and remove anything that's not necessary and, and whatever. Yeah, you got to get to the point because a lot of people don't want to read emails. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, make it as short as possible. Nobody wants yeah. to read that email anyway. <laughs> yep. Great. So we might start wrapping it up now um, and just going some different tangents. Uh, we spoke about the new MacBooks that were theoretically coming out this week, which are now out. Unfortunately, Apple has had this really run of bad luck or maybe it's, I don't know, lazy supply chains or something, but all of the information about these new devices in the last couple of years have basically been out weeks and even months before they've launched. So. We knew that it was going to have a Touch ID. We knew that it was going to have, you know, an, an OLED display on it. I'm not buying one. Uh, it's going to cost <laughs> me about $3,000 Australian to get essentially the same MacBook that I bought a year and a half ago, um, just mm-hmm. with more more hard drive space. I'm not sold on the Touch ID. I was really kind of blown away by the, the Surface Studio that Microsoft announced on Thursday. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. But it's running Windows, so I'm, you know, I'm probably not going to buy that either. <laughs> Windows 10 may be great. I don't know. I've never used it. Maybe when Ubuntu has full support. I was just wondering, what about you guys? I know Jake said you were probably going to get one. And I guess Matt as well, if you had any thoughts on it. I'll let you go first, Matt. I, I'm not up for a new laptop. I don't need one right now. We um, kind of don't upgrade until it's, you know, you're noticing a performance improvement or performance problem. So I've got a late 2013 Retina MacBook Pro, 16 gigs where I am, and it's fine, you know? And so for me, I don't care about the new and shiny. I just care that I'm, I'm able to do my work really well. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that means I'm not going to upgrade my MacBook. But interestingly, I was very, very attracted to the um, the Surface Studio thing and just a lot of the interactions there. But as an, as an illustrator and as somebody who really likes to kind of get, but I'm not any good at one. I'm not going to spend $3,000 <laughs> or right. something. My iPad Pro is my big expense as an illustrator. But a lot of folks I know are like talking about like, well, what if we switch to Windows? What if we switch? I'm like, no, 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 no. I, and, and people are complaining about like lack of like massive improvements. I literally don't care 
if I can use this amazing operating system that changed the way I do my work for the rest of my life and you just keep making things faster to keep up with new software and bigger to keep up with bigger software, like I'm good. And like, of course, at some point there are going to be some big breakthroughs where we're like wearing the things on our eyes and they're projecting out of our arms or whatever. Okay, cool. That's fine. But like until there's actually meaningful improvements like i am perfectly fine with something just getting a little bit better and the same thing happens with laravel like what new cool feature i don't care like it's a little bit better than it was last time and that time is a little bit better than that time so like at some point like you i don't want people to innovate for the sake of innovation and there's a lot of really valid criticisms of mac of of mac for like maybe they don't really know who their target market is and maybe they've like lost the creatives i get it and i'm not saying that none of those things are true however as a as for me personally, not thinking about the higher perspective, literally as long as it's a little bit better than the last one, like I'm not going to complain about it, at least in the immediate term. So I don't need one right now. So I'm not going to the majority of Titan or at least half of Titan was like waiting on this, hoping it was going to be like some mind bendingly awesome one. So even though it wasn't mind bendingly awesome, they all still need an upgrade anyway. So we will probably buy quite a few of the upgrades. So I'm not sure. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of, I'm being a skeptic on this one. I'm not buying it. I don't think I, I just like, I, we've all read that blog post probably by now, that one that kind of, you know, that basically says they've lost their target demographic. I just, with the, the stripping away of the F keys for the touch bar, okay, fine. I, I feel like most creative, most people who are in our space, I don't know that they're using their laptop as their, you know, I, I don't think there's a ton of people who are sitting down with the laptop in their lap with a touch bar accessible. Yeah. Uh, so right. I don't know what big, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I hear people saying like, oh, it's going to be really cool. It's a contextual buttons and that's fine, but I'm not going to be reaching over my desk in my stand yeah. to get over to my touch bar to you. I just, it's, yeah. you know, I just can't get there. And I've, you know, they didn't really improve memory. They didn't really improve processor that much. They stripped away a lot of the ports that I kind of use on a regular basis and they took away MagSafe, and I have to get a converter for my Thunderbolt monitor. So honestly, I might just get a little bit late model, like you know, maybe like a twenty, I don't know, fifteen model, because yeah. I really like the one I have now. I'm just not buying the 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 whole touch bar thing. It, it, it wouldn't do anything for me, and it would be a big hassle to get all those peripherals back plugged in. Okay, we are way over time. We are over an hour. Matt, congratulations. This is our first over one hour. Yay. I told you I could talk. I know, right? We're good. We're good. Okay, last question here and we're going to wrap up. What are your kids wearing for Halloween? Um, my daughter is wearing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle onesie. Yes. Which is, you know, getting an infant to wear a costume is difficult. So just painting a onesie <laughs> is, you know, the way to do it. And my son is... I. Uh, my son is going as Super Kai, basically. And so we have a costume that he got for his birthday that's got the letter on the back and he's got a cape and he's got all this kind of stuff. And so he, we thought the whole family were going to be the Incredibles. And uh, he decided at the last second that he wanted to be that and we can be whatever superheroes we're going to be. So I think my wife is going to be Supergirl and I'm going to be Batman or something like that. Nice. And my, I've been showing my son old clips from the old Batman, classic <laughs> Batman, which he calls old silly Batman. Um, and so I was trying to get a classic Batman Batman costume and they all sold out and I was so disappointed. So I'm just going to be Dark Knight Batman, but whatever. It was a cheap costume to make my son feel like we're all superheroes. So <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. What about y'all? Uh, my kids, let's see. My oldest son, my little boy, he is wearing. Oh, and by the way, your four year old, he's technically a big boy now, Matt. That is the oh word. Oh, gosh. He's not a toddler. He is a big boy, and he will tell you if he hasn't told He's you He's called himself a big boy for about three years. <laughs> yeah, so well, there you go. There you go. That is the correct word for it. He's a big boy now. Yeah. Uh, so my my big boy, my five-year-old, is wearing um, – he's Leonardo. 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, nice. My three-year-old it was a clown for her f- when she was one, and she wanted to wear that again. So we squeezed <laughs> my three-year-old into a one-year-old outfit. Nice. It's ridiculous. It's got suspenders, and the suspenders were like hooked onto her shirt because they weren't long <laughs> enough to go to her pants. But she was insistent. She wanted to be a clown, so fine, whatever. And then my youngest was a peacock. She's she's one. Oh my gosh, it's adorable. I put pictures up. So yeah. Anyway, lots of fun. I was. Wait, what about the adults? Oh man, I'm sorry. So we had like a trunk or treat thing. It's called. Or you like go to you know you decorate your cars, whatever, and have the community come out and and you know you give them candy, whatever. And we were like our car theme was like sports. So we had like we're Broncos fans. So I had like Broncos and and Patriots and. I was it was cold out, so I was bundled up, and somebody told me I was UGG boots away from being Tom Brady. That's what they told me. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah, because I had a coat on and everything that you know my Bronco stuff was underneath, so I was Tom Brady for trunk or treat. Um, not on purpose, but that's what I was. And I don't think my wife didn't dress up as anything. Sorry, we're grouchy old people, I guess. I don't know. When you have kids, it's it, you know if you get them out of the house and they come home, you know not screaming too loud i think i think it's a win exactly michael how about you i'm guessing zelda and lego star wars or something i don't know uh so two things obviously we don't have any kids so we don't dress them up but the other thing is we don't really celebrate halloween in australia so really yeah i mean it's it's kind of making its way over here in the last two or three years but it's not big like our Mm -hmm. um state police they they put out a pdf that you can download, which either says, no thanks, I'm not participating in Halloween, or yes, you can come and get candy here, and you stick it on your door. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, a, we're a no thanks family, I'm afraid. That's, that <laughs> sounds very civilized. Yeah, very polite. We just shut our lights off on the porch if we're not interested. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the code. Yeah. That's turn the, the American lights. code. Yeah, if you, if you don't have candy, you turn off your porch lights. Well, it's daylight savings here, so when, they, when the kids come around, the sun is still out, unfortunately. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's so. that. Yeah, it's, I'm always surprised at which holidays have made it outside of the U.S., and I don't know why I assumed that this was one where I was not surprised. I was, I was assuming it had, but yeah. Oh, well. Sorry. Yeah, it's coming. Our, our, my gym is actually all doled up. They've got, you know, cobwebs, and I was I was in the squat rack, and I go to the gym with my brother, and I'm, you know, on, on the squat, and he throws a rubber spider at me. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? I'm going to destroy my knees here. <laughs> Luckily, he can't throw, and so it like went behind nice. me and hit the weights. And uh, these are the fun things that you learn when you have a co-host who's from Australia. So this is <laughs> this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Well, Matt, we want to thank you again for taking time to come on the show. I know you got so much going on: new babies, new book, all sorts of stuff. So thanks again for taking some time out of your super busy schedule to chat with yeah. us, man. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks for you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and and good luck for the, for the book when it when it does come out. Any day, any day, so ready. <laughs> well, guys, you can find the uh, show notes for this at northmeetsouth.audio/slash/fourteen. And if you'd like to talk to us on Twitter, you can hit us at North South Audio. And of course, as always, if you like the show, feel free to rate us uh, five stars in your podcatcher of choice. As always, Michael, it is a pleasure talking. We will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, Matt. Hey, and if you've got any suggestions, I hear Matt's working on this project called Suggestive, <laughs> which should be ready very, very soon. Yeah, I, I did tell Jeffrey that if it was not ready by the next time we record the Laravel podcast, he could do something horribly embarrassing to me. So it will be ready <laughs> very soon. So we're either going to have Suggestive or something very embarrassing, yes. which I look forward to either yeah. way. I, I, somehow I get the picture that everyone's not rooting for the Suggestive side. I don't know why. <laughs> I... 
think that's probably correct. <laughs> All right, take it easy, guys. Awesome. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks. See ya. Hi, editing Michael. Hi, how you doing? Alone in alone in a room in the dark, <laughs> listening to us. Oh my gosh, that's not creepy. Okay. <laughs>